As we dive into this book of John, we are going to be continuing forward in several conversations about various kind of things that we're going to be discovering here. So we may be moving a little slow today, actually. We're going to only cover two verses. Right there, people go, how long are we? I actually decide I'm going to retire in the book of John. So we'll be in this for a while. Um, we'll be doing good. But um, in, all, in, all, in all honesty, it's a, a, as I've kind of begun studying through John, I was reminded about various kinds of relationships. I, I can recall a time when um, my wife and I were dating. It was back, uh, back early on in the relationship, uh, maybe about a month in. We had known each other four years earlier and had kind of had been hanging out and known each other fairly well. But at this reintroduction time period, there was a lot of little bits about who we were that we had assumed and we'd brought into the conversation about how we thought or how we responded to various arguments or how we were going to deal with each other. And so there was a lot of assumed relationship. I don't know if you've ever been in a part in a, in a situation like that, but we had gone to a uh, birthday party of a, one of the one of the youth workers um, down down here at Olive Ranch. And so we were at their his parents' house, and there was, we'd done this whole video for Matt, and it was kind of this cool like, hey, we're all gonna have fun, and here's Matt, we love Matt, and da da da, da all this stuff about Matt. And on the video, I had a tendency to go a little overboard as I normally do, and strange voices were coming out of my mouth, and uh, all kinds of odd behaviors and things that I normally display only on a stage in front of people, um, came out. And, and my wife's never seen any of those things at the time. She never heard me throw out Larry, you know, the cucumber, and I can't do that right now. I, my voice hurts. But, the, uh, you know, all these kind of voices and things I would do, and I was throwing all this on the video, just making fun of Matt and having fun. And, and suddenly I realized, you got, I had that one moment where I was like, oh, she hasn't, like, ran into that part of me yet. And I'm not so sure this is the best moment to introduce her to this aspect of my personality. Um... Hey, babe, I, th I think it's time to go, you know? And so just as the video is about to show, I'm kind of ushering her out behind everybody going, we need to leave. Sorry, guys, see you later. We got stuff we got to do. And she's like, why are we going? Where are we going? And just as we're halfway through the room trying to make it way, I show up on the screen and I'm doing this like, hey, Matt, we feel good. And whatever it was, I don't know, Barney or who knows what it was. And, and she just kind of was like, I'm like, okay, awkward, and we like leave. We're in the car, and we're driving home. She's quiet. I drop her off. Like the next day, we're sitting in her house. She's like, we have to break up. I, can't, I cannot go out with you. You are not who I thought you were. You are completely, this is, this is not something I understand or even know how to manage. And, and so we worked through that, and, and we did get married, and now she, she sees it four times over with four children who do the same things. And so there's this whole reality for us. But your expectations you bring into a relationship can shape the way that you assume somebody is. You ever notice that? There's been a lot of conversation out there about people on their first date having scoured Facebook and Instagram and the person they're going to go on the date with, and they jump in, they know all this stuff about you before they even meet you. And they have all these expectations and assumptions about who you are because, hey, it was on your Facebook page or, hey, it was in your Instagram feed or whatever. <clears throat> that changes the way that first date dynamic works. And what's funny is you and I can have a lot of assumptions and expectations about people. And then as life rolls forward, what happens? You begin to go, I didn't know that about you. Oh, that's different. Whether it's a friend, a spouse, or anybody, there's these moments where suddenly your eyes are opened and you're going, oh, you weren't like that when either somebody changes or they actually show you who they are. The problem exists not just with human relationships, it exists with a relationship with God. I mean, you stop and think about it, we can bring a lot of assumptions about God to the table when we start a relationship with Him. 
They may be imagined assumptions, imagined expectations that you and I have created because, hey, we, we're imaginative people, or maybe you, you've brought them in from another religious perspective, or maybe just from the general culture, there's some thoughts about what God should be like or how God is because that's how you grew up. And as we build in and begin to relate to God, some of those expectations can get in the way, especially if you're journeying through the Bible for the first time, and you're reading some things, and you're like, God did what? I did what? And you start reading that Old Testament, and you start reading about wars, and you start reading about the strange practices that happened in humanity in the ancient Near East, and you can begin to really struggle with who is this God? How do I understand God? What do I do with God? So it's nice that the book of John doesn't start there. In fact, it's as if God said, let's begin at the very beginning. Let's get out of the, all of the creation out of the way, all before human beings could even assume anything about God, before there was even angels to be worshiping me. Let's go back to before there was anything but God and look at him there. And that's exactly what John does. So if you want to go there with me, we're going to open the Bible up to John chapter 1. We're starting verses 1 and 2, and we're just, that's it. We're going to look at that. Again, I said, I'm going to retire in John. We're going to work through this thing. And uh, I think you'll be, um, I hope you'll be uh, challenged by the message John has in these two verses. <clears throat> if you do not have a Bible, you're, um, they're available for you under the seats. You can pull one out there, page 886 in the Bible under the seats. Otherwise, John is the fourth gospel of the New Testament. So if you're finding Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is number four. If you're in like weird names, Galatians, Ephesians, things like that, go left and you'll find John. So as we dive in, this is how John opens the entire book of John. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And, he's, and that's just how he starts. Simple language, actually very simple sets of words, and yet they're extremely deep. The arguments of these, uh, that have been born from these two verses raged for over 400 years as the church tried to wrestle down a conversation and understanding of what was going on as they knew Jesus was God. But how was he God? Because they also understood that Jesus had endorsed Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. And so you guys don't know what that is, but it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so the idea that there was only one God, and yet how is Jesus God, then also became an entire theological conundrum for the church. And they would wrestle, and they would wrestle, and they would wrestle, and they would wrestle, and they would wrestle over this issue. And <laughs> so this morning, I want to I look at this, because these verses are highly important. In fact, as they wrestle, we would come to the answer of what is called Trinitarianism, of the Trinity. Um, so how many guys have ever heard the Trinity and just gone, I, I, I've heard it, and that's about as far as you've gone with it? You know, you, you've never really pushed forward any further. Throw your hand up real quick. It's okay. I just want to get an idea where we're at. Okay. A lot of Christians have come to the concept of the Trinity, kind of looked over the edge at it, and gone, really? We're going to jump down there? And the answer is yes. This morning, we're going to try to jump down there a little bit. Because here's the struggle with the Trinity. The Trinity is one of those things that people are arguing about all over the place. People are struggling with in various forms. In fact, what was odd for me is it became a very important argument for me in, the youth in my youth ministry life. I had a friend who had um, been very influential in the youth ministry. By the time I was in college, he had gone off to the master's college and gone to uh, a seminary over in Jerusalem and come back. And when he came back, he's like, I don't believe in the Trinity. It's a ridiculous doctrine. And he started arguing that all of us as friends over this issue... 
It forced me and a few of my other friends and a few of my uh, now relatives to really dive in deep and think about this concept of the Trinity. And to be honest, I could stand up here and I could wax eloquent about the Trinity and go crazy about the doctrine of the Trinity and talk all the details about how you prove it and where it comes from and all. But, but let's be honest, I don't think you came for a class this morning and, and so I don't, I don't have a whiteboard. You'd be real trouble if I had a whiteboard. Uh, <clears throat> but I do, want to get, I do want to start with this conversation about what is going on with the Trinity. See, in verses 1 and 2, God pulls all the way back to the beginning because he wants us to get to know himself as he is, get to know him as himself. He doesn't want us to bring assumptions in. He doesn't want us to bring all this stuff in. Instead, he wants us to see who he was in the beginning before anything else existed. And he says this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's a sense that there's a, a, this thing that's the Word this, that is with God. God, and yet it is God. In fact, if you want to listen in the way that is best understood, it reads a little bit better when you put it in the terms of the persons. It said, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was what the Father was, is a way that you could translate this. Because it's pretty much how the Greek is working. It's not allowing you to say, God in the end of this is the same at the beginning. You say, Greg, that's really technical. Why are you getting into this? Because it starts to form the Trinity. It starts to help begin grappling with the concept of the Trinity that is in the Scriptures, that Jesus is God, that the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there's only one God. You go like, That's just, what? How can three be one and one be three? I get it, three times three times three. One times one times one is one. You know, no, no, that's not how this works. It's one plus one plus one. How, how does this work? It's good that we wrestle with this, but just to kind of show you that it's not made up, we see that I mean, nobody doubts the Father is God. I think everybody here is like, yeah, God, God the Father. We got that one down. But Jesus is God. Yes, this verse is showing that Jesus is God. I'll give you another author, and his name is Paul, writing in his letter to Titus. He simply says, well, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, multiple times throughout in Philippians, he's called God. In Colossians, he's called God. And you'll find it throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus is called God so routinely, it's something we really shouldn't be arguing about. And really, they didn't. They were just arguing, how was he God? The Holy Spirit is a different thing. People argue whether the Holy Spirit is God or not. They'll say, he's a force. No, he's not a person. And the bottom line is, the Holy Spirit is clearly God. One of the simple places you find this is in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira are a couple who in the early church who have owned quite a bit of land. And they decided, you know what? We got a great idea. Let's look really, really good. We'll sell our land, turn around and give it to the church, the money to the church, and claim we gave everything, but we'll keep a little portion. Well, they bring this offering to the church, and Peter addresses Ananias. Says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back your, from, for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did, you, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. In that, suddenly you have this equation between lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to God. In fact, the Spirit of, is called the Spirit of Christ. It's called the Spirit of God. There's so many references that the Spirit is clearly one of, that is God, and it's a person you can lie to. It's a person you can grieve. And so I get into the details of this, in fact, but the reality is that these three are one. Remember the, uh, what we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That word name is a singular word. It means one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one person, 
or sorry, one essence that is God and three persons who are that. In other words, we like to say it like this. There are three who's in the Trinity, but there, are one, there is only one what. There is only one that is, that there's one essence that is God. There are three who are God. Now you go like, that doesn't make sense. And so here's what the church has done throughout the centuries ever since when we've codified this. They go, we, we need an analogy. And so Patrick would bring out a clover and he'd say, see the three leaves of the clover, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet they're one clover. And we go, oh, but the problem is you take off one leaf of the clover, it doesn't cease to be a clover. If you remove one person of the Trinity, God disappears completely. In some way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, but they're not each other. The Father isn't the Son. You're not saying, when you talk to Jesus, you're not talking to the Father. The Father didn't die on the cross. Jesus, the Word, died on the cross. And so you're like, wait a minute, but they're separate, but they're this. Anybody's head hurt? I'm doing this on purpose. In fact, the ancients would get so, so, so serious about this, they would try to find a good analogy. The best one they ever got close to was the sun. They said, you can only know the sun by seeing its rays. But you can only know the rays of the sun because it comes from the sun. How do you, if, this, if the rays of the sun vanish, the sun would be gone. If you saw the sun, you only see the rays of the sun. They're different, but they're the same. That was the best they could get at with light. And we've been left to ourselves to go like, what analogy works? How do we explain this? And some people have just simply said, this is ridiculous. It's illogical. It's actually not illogical. It is the finite human mind trying to comprehend an infinite God. I don't want to stop and pause for a second before we scoff at these concepts. Because it's so easy to scoff at, as human beings at these kind of concepts because we don't get them and they sound so silly. They're logical and there is explanations and I don't want to spend the rest of the sermon giving you those and making our heads hurt and all that stuff. That's not my goal this morning. What my goal is, is to let you know is that if you can comprehend your God, if you can figure him out, that's not God. Shouldn't the God of the universe that creates DNA that's capable of imparting information into it, designing a world and a universe that can sustain life in a massive, massive universe, shouldn't he be larger than the concepts of our minds? Shouldn't he be so wondrous and so mind-blowing that we step back and go, who would invent this thing? What is this? That there can be three persons, there is one God, that there is one God in this universe, and yet inside that God is a, is, a, is a grand relationship. And I just want to pause because we could get into the technicalities and we could argue out all the different various verses and what it means and how it works. And I could show you all that stuff. And to be quite honest, it would be really, really boring in an American context, okay? But <laughs> you need to be blown away a little bit. You need to be taken to the end of your intelligence, at least for a moment. We need to be awed, wowed, and wondered because God is wondrous and greater than our smartest people. He is blowing away the geniuses of this world. He is the greatest concept that you can plumb, that you can dive into. And so I challenge you not, not to sit there and go, that's too hard for my head, but to challenge you that perhaps it's in the journey of that challenge that you discover the depth and the nuance of truths. 
that you never could have known before. I'll give, give you a bit of a way that this has challenged my heart. I was talking with my, my brother-in-law, David, who, who in his past has had the opportunity to learn how to fly helicopters. And um, pretty cool situation. I'm like, he's, I actually got to go in it with him once, and I was like, this is scary. My brother-in-law's flying me over something. And what was scarier is when he told me, yeah, and I've trained other people how to fly helicopters. I'm like, dude. And one of the funniest thing is when we were in this conversation, I was trying to kind of pull out the idea of how you take a law and you make it practical. Because I was thinking about it. You know, the laws of aerodynamics are important for flight. Anybody agree with that? Does anybody know the laws of aerodynamics in this room other than probably a few, a few of you pilots, right? Okay, we know some of it about lift and things like that, but if you're designing a Boeing 747 or you're designing some kind of military aircraft, you need to know the laws of aerodynamics, right? You need to know them so well you can apply them and use them and, and argue them and bring them to clarity for people. You know, that's kind of my level. I need to know the Trinity at a level where I can argue it to you. I can bring the nuance. I can, I can give you analogy after analogy. That, that's kind of where my position is as a pastor. And I think any pastor in a church should be able to do that with something like the Trinity. Now, what's cool is my brother-in-law is like, yeah, I can argue this. He may not be at that level. He says, but I got to be able, as a pilot, I need, the first thing you learn are the laws of aerodynamics. Because if you don't know the laws of aerodynamics, you're not going to pilot that plane. You're not going to pilot that helicopter. You have to know them to understand how the machinery works so you know what, the, what you're looking at. The laws are not just ideas anymore. They're practical things. And then there's a whole group of us, right, that we just need to trust that the law of aerodynamics work and get on the plane, right? Can I just tell you guys something? As Christians, if you're a Christian, you're not a passenger on a plane. You're a pilot. You need to understand the Trinity well enough that you can begin to explain it to a certain level. Now, that may be a challenge to you, but the reality, why I bring that to you is because when you start to understand the Trinity, when you begin to apprehend and think about it to a small extent, you're going to discover something. That at the center of the Christian faith that the resurrection proves is this belief that God is triune and from their births, the spiritual life. That if you do not get the Trinity right, your spiritual life will have a strange anemia, a, a limping about it that doesn't work right because the spiritual life is derived from a knowledge of the Trinitarian reality of God. You see, John doesn't start, thankfully, with a huge giant conversation of aerodynamics. He starts with a very personal truth. One that we need to take in. One that actually was impacting my heart years ago because of a woman in my small group. She had uh, grown up Jehovah's Witness. Come out, of the Jeho come out of Jehovah's Witnesses, become a Christian, and yet she was wrestling with some very deep problems, some very major struggles, and felt God was so distant and, and not connecting with Him at all. And as we would talk and counsel and, and go through things, what happened was we began to discover she believed God was not relational. She believed that God was this single monad God standing in the sky. And when you have that, all he does is declare and declare laws and rules and ways of going. And you need to please that God because that was how it was. God was not relational. He was a set of rules you followed. It was an abstract concept. Much like Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses hold today, this has changed the way that they relate in their religious experience. 
My friends, if we don't get the Trinity right, you miss the foundational key to the spiritual life, which is this, that God is a relationship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word with is the word pros. What's interesting is that word actually translated literally in Greek is to or toward. It means it has energy in a direction. And yet there's a few times where it's not used that way. It had started to evolve in its language use throughout the centuries. And, and one of the things it landed on was the word with, but it was always relationship. It always meant when you were with somebody else that you had a close relationship with. It wasn't about proximity. It was about relating. If you're before the beginning, if there's no space and time, there is no proximity. There's only relationship. And the Word has a relationship with the Father, and the Word is God as the Father is is God, is this idea. There is this relationship that's occurring. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. The Father and the Son are, this whole relationship is erupting. And and I want you to hear this. The point is that the center of the universe is relationship. At the center of spiritual life is relationship. At the center of the Christian faith is relationship relational conversation, relationship like you and I have relationship. And here's the struggle that I have is that too many of us approach God like an abstract doctrine. You approach him like he's an amazing idea. We approach him like he's some concept in the sky, but not a person to get to know. And so you're blown away when God doesn't work in the system that we've built. Or when he says no to a prayer, like a person has the right to say no to. Suddenly we see he ceases to be a person in relationship. He starts to be an idea. And God's not just simply an idea. He's an actual being that exists. He's an actual someone you can have a relationship with. He's not somebody you just relate to by a list of do's and don'ts. You know, if you do this and you do this and you do this, you've got a great relationship with somebody. I mean, we've all read the magazines, right? Imagine if you really approached your relationship in your, in your, to your spouse from a checklist. Hey, Teresa, how are you doing? Good. I bought you flowers. Oh, thank you. Nope, checklist said I had to. Check. It also says, in order that you feel loved, I need to tell you seven times every day that I love you. I love you, 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 I love you. Check. Now, can we have sex? Is that going to (laughs) work? No, that's not a relationship. That's a relationship you have with a computer. It answers my question. I put in a question. That's not a relationship. Relationship is dynamic. It's ebb and flow. It's getting to know. It's oh, the wrong expectation. Set that aside. It's, there's tension and heat. There's struggle and passion. The problem is many of us have stopped approaching God in the form of relationship. And what we've done is we've approached God in the form of pragmatic, practical instructions. In fact, churches around the globe are turning the Bible away from the relationship you have with God into pragmatic American practical instruction manuals so that you are good with God if you made sure you had your quiet time in the morning, you made your prayers, you got to church, you served somewhere, and you ensured that you talked to one person about Jesus. Check, 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 check. God, are we good? That's not a relationship. People gripe and complain when the Bible teaching isn't practical with step-by-step-by-step instructions. I have no problem with step-by-step instructions. 
I have a problem when that's all we give you and you think life is about a bunch of rules and laws. You see the background of this book is a bunch of Pharisees had moved into the synagogue and what were they teaching people how to have a relationship with God through the Ten Commandments only and the laws on top of those Ten Commandments and all the new commands they had added on top of those to ensure that you're right with God. The American church and the human heart does the same things. We are not satisfied that Christ has made us right with God. We are not satisfied that through Jesus, God's happy with you. He's given you everything you need to make God happy. It is not a list of rules. The relationship is open. It's time to get to know God. Because God is relationship. He is with God and is God. At the center of the universe is this perfect relationship. God never messed his relationship up. The father wasn't up there yelling at the son. The son wasn't yelling at the father and the Holy Spirit. They weren't sitting there going, I'm not talking to you this week. You know, they were one. One in essence. It's no wonder they're considered the perfect relationship. First John, in the letter, God, God explains himself this way, that God is love. What is a perfect relationship except a relationship of true love, self-sacrificial love, where you are willing to give yourself to the other? God wasn't up there all bored out of his mind in eternity before there's anything made. I mean, can you imagine the picture that we like to paint of God? Comedians love this stuff. God's up there and he's like, okay, I've been me for, yeah, infinity. This is boring. I want somebody to talk to Oh, make everything. That's a great idea. Is that why God created? Because he was just bored? Sitting there going, I don't know what to do next. That's a good idea. You know, no. God was in heaven, and he was the father in love with the son, amazed by the son, passionate about the son, enjoying the son. The son's doing the same with the father. The spirit's doing the same with them. And they are content, pleased, excited, and amazed every moment of their existence. In other words, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me. And he doesn't need fluffy bunnies and cute little seals and ugly sharks. No, doesn't need any of it. Blazing stars, angels worshiping at his feet. He was perfectly content in the beginning. They were in perfect fellowship and glory. And this is why you need to understand our dynamics to fly the plane. The beginning of your journey in spiritual life is when you and I realize God didn't need us, but he chose to make us anyways because he wants you to be here. He wants to love you. He wants relationship with you. And as a God who wants and doesn't need, who is not desperate, he wants and is not sitting there going, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. He is so secure in himself, he's willing to die for our sins to remove anything in the way as showing how much he wants. He made you, he allowed you to live, he redeems you from your sin because he wants to, but he is not worried that if you reject him, somehow he's lost something. He's perfectly secure in himself. 
And that's a scary thought for us human beings who really want God to need us. And he doesn't. You know what's beautiful about the Trinity is that God didn't simply close in as a clique and say, yeah, I'm all me. I'm just me and I like me. He said, no, I'm going to share this. I'm going to open this up. I'm going to invite you and I want you to be a part of this relationship. And so guys, I want you to hear something. Maybe your problem in your marriage, maybe the struggle with your children, maybe the issue with your HOA, Greg, is, is, <laughs> has less to do with a set of lists of, pro- of things to solve the problem. And it has far more to do with getting to know the God who is relationship that can shape how you relate. Maybe it's time to abandon the lists of things for just a little while so you have the relationship the list comes from. Maybe it's time to know God intimately and see how He loves and self-sacrifices and to walk with Him in a way so that rubs off on us that we love others in the way that God loves us. And God loves within himself because his relationship's perfect. It's never been broken. Maybe it's just getting to know him and his relationship. And that begins to resolve the matters of our messy, nasty relationships. And it's not a bunch of lists that disappoint. And a bunch of things to plug in so we can get blessing. But it's a transformation by having a relationship because God's opened that up. See, he's not up there hiding from us. He's not going, hey, the humans want to know who we are. No, no, don't tell them. No, he uses the, John's clear. He says he, he was the word. What is this thing? There's lots of arguments about what the word is. It's simply summed up in this way. It is God's expression of himself. Think about it. I could turn off all the lights and I could stand up here. And, you, and if every light was off in this room, trust me, it's black in here. You, I knock my shins into things all the time. And if it was that black in here and you couldn't see anything at all, you wouldn't know if I'm on stage or not. The only way you would know is if I speak. You see, word is a revelation of who you are. We used to say it this way, my word is my bond. Why did we say that? Because what I said about me needed to be true. Because if I lied, you would never know if I ever told you about who I really was. Our words must be honest because deception destroys your ability to communicate who you are. When we misuse our word, we misuse the ability to communicate who our essence is. The way that you think when it comes out of your mouth shows me who you are. And that's the power of what it means by the word. He was expressing himself. In fact, Jesus will become, the word will become flesh in Jesus and he will explain God to us. And this changes the context of how you and I read the Bible. See, the, at least the book of John, John's trying to start you off and say, Look, whenever you read this, whatever Jesus is doing, that is what God is doing. You want to see how God relates to this sinful situation? Just read what Jesus does because that's what God is doing. You want to know God? It's not because you had a checklist and you said, I read a, I read a psalm and I thought about it. Check, done, moving on. No, it's picking this up and beginning to wonder the fact that God is speaking over and over about who he is. The only character that is consistent in this entire book, the one that shows up on every page, is God. This is a story of him revealing himself, speaking about who he is and what he's doing and how he works with messy humans. And the beauty is that when we enter this book, you're not going to it to go like, all right, read it, check. But you're going to have an encounter in a relationship with God. 
you guys remember that first date or that first time sitting down with a close friend and you're like, you didn't know he was a close, you didn't know he'd become a close friend. You're just kind of like, I'm hanging out with this dude and it's going to be coffee. See how this goes. Like, no, I haven't done that in years. Okay, so go back there and think about it for a minute. How nervous you were. How unsure you, what questions to ask. But you knew you needed to ask questions. You knew you needed to disclose parts of who you were. When you sit down with the Bible, have you stopped asking questions? Have you stopped disclosing who you are before God? Have you stopped acting like it's a relationship and started turning it into a checklist to get through the Bible in a year? Have you turned it around to yourself and your prayer life is just a big list of, God, I want this and this and this and this and this. Where do I plug the quarter in? Is it turned into rote prayers of things that you thought you were always supposed to pray? Or is it turned into a relationship which you speak and wait and listen for God to respond back? Because He is relationship. He is a God who is indwelling us. He is a God who is present. And the reality is we can't treat Him like a list. See, the issue is many of us, I guarantee you, in a room this size, many of us are struggling to have a relationship with God. We're, we're, we're coming to Him as a checklist. Brent was telling me about one of his trips to Bermuda. I think it's his only trip to Bermuda, but he had just gone there recently and met one of the, one of the uh, native islanders there who had been, lived there all his life. He walked up to me and he's like, dude, isn't this place amazing? I mean, you got to grow up here. I just want to know. Did you like wake up every morning? You looked at the beautiful white sands, the gorgeous clear crystal waters, the, the, the clouds in the sky and the rain came and the, you had the huts and it's just, it's just gorgeous here all the time. Did you ever just sit there and go, God, thank you that I get to live here? And the guy said, no. He's like, all I ever wanted to do is get off this thing. It was so small. I've been everywhere. It's done everything. Anybody small town person know what I'm talking about? And what's funny is when things seem so small and small town or small island mentality set in, it's always about what's over there and bigger and greater. If God has become small, I guarantee you're struggling with sin. I guarantee you're struggling with pornography, lying, and addiction. Because when God is so small, other pleasures look so large. Here's the problem, though. It's not based on reality. It's based on false familiarity. The false familiarity is when you assume you already know something when you really don't know it. We love this as Americans, especially on Facebook and Instagram. We love to claim we know stuff when we have no clue about it. And you know you're in trouble because you claim something and somebody asks you to explain yourself, and you're like, "Eh, yeah, well, you know, I read an internet site. You know, that's your explanation. If you're standing there in your faith and somebody asks you the gospel and you're fumbling over your words because you don't know how to explain the very thing that you believe saves you. That's interesting to me because in a relationship, if you ask me about my wife, I'm going to blab for hours because I know a ton about her. If you ask me about my kids, I'm going to talk about them constantly. If you ask me about my friends, I'm going to be able to tell you quite a bit. But if you ask me about my God, I'm not going to quite know how to talk. I don't want to challenge you. That maybe we haven't been relating with God like we think we have. That maybe we're taking Him for granted. That maybe it is a checklist in the morning or in the lunch period. 
And it's not every day connected with the God who is relationship. That we have a false familiarity and so we have a small God mentality and therefore other things look so much better. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, Jesus has borne your sins, you're at peace with God and there's a relationship you can have with Him to abandon the lists and the to-dos to remove the practical principles and begin a journey again in relationship with your Lord. In which you read the word because he speaks to you, in which you pray to talk to him, in which you invest in other people's lives because he's leading you, in which you are living out his way and you're seeing him move because you know him. Some of us need to turn away. Some of us need to come back. doesn't mean you're getting saved. It just means that you're turning back away from things that have long distracted us or shortly distracted us. But that's my challenge. That Christians, if you have walked and been focused on so many other things and the relationship is thin, it's time to take up your relationship with the living God who is relationship again. And then see how the practical principles birth from them because the heart has changed. And the relationship has changed because you have known the God who is relationship. Would you bow your heads with me? There's a story of a, of a couple in our church that Justin shared with me, and I want to leave you with this thought. Ed was, uh, has been married to his wife for, for many, many years, and He's, he's getting, he's, he's not up there in age, but he's getting, he's moving. And uh, he's telling Justin with a smile in his eyes, like, oh man, I love my wife, Betty, so much. And he said, basically, I, I love her because, you know, I know her so well now after all these years. And, he's, and then he, with a twinkle in his eye, he said, and there's so much more to get to know. I hope that's your heart with God. And if it's not, ask him to convict you as the band plays today, ask him to call you back to that relationship with him. And then when it's time, let's participate in the simple acts of turning back to him of repentance. So join with us as we sing. God, would you just open our hearts up, we pray, and lead us forward in Jesus' name.